Well, let me add my welcome this morning. My name is Alistair. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Pete's. We're really glad uh, you're worshiping with us wherever you are, even if you're watching after the fact. I just know we're really grateful that you're a part of our community or that you're leaning in and discerning whether this is the place you want to call home. Uh, Before we dig into God's word, uh, let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that we can gather, uh, albeit in a virtual space, that uh, your spirit still makes us one, uh, that though apart, we are still together. And we're thankful that uh, the story we just proclaimed in the creed, uh, the authority of your scriptures uh, and your unifying spirit hold us together through this time. As we hit the one-year mark of uh, pandemic life, we ask that you would continue to sustain us and uphold us, uh, encourage us, uh, and help us endure uh, as we wait uh, for life to return to some semblance of normal. As we open your word this morning, we ask that you apply it to our minds so we not grow shallow, that you'd apply it to our hearts so we not grow cold, that you'd apply it to our feet. We would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We pray all of these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we've been exploring how identity and temptation relate to one another, and there's no better place to look than the temptations Jesus endured in the wilderness as he faced the devil. Uh, In the second temptation, as we just read, the devil takes Jesus to a vantage point where he can see all the kingdoms of the world. But before we press into what this second temptation is all about, I want to talk about the devil for a little bit, or the or Satan, or the tempter, because he's a key player in this scene, and, and what are we supposed to make of this person? Um, Luke's gospel, if, we, if you've been tracking with us in this series so far, has given us the impression that the world is governed by uh, the Roman Empire, by people like Caesar Augustus or Tiberius Caesar. And through the incarnation, God has come into the world, and he's subverting these powers by establishing his kingdom in small yet significant ways in his son. But now our passage reveals that behind the powers of this world, the devil is actually pulling the strings, that the world is actually governed by Satan. As we just heard Satan boast in our reading, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. There's no escaping this in Scripture. There really isn't. The devil rules and reigns in this world. He is the God of this age, according to the Apostle Paul. He rules behind the scenes, but this doesn't mean he's inactive just because we can't see him. The devil, he appears again and again and again in the New Testament. When Jesus encounters him here in the wilderness, Jesus is not encountering some abstract idea. He's not just encountering... um, a mythological embodiment of what evil and temptation is. Jesus speaks about the devil as a person all throughout the Gospels, and the various writers of the New Testament do as well. There are over 70 references to Satan in the New Testament. So he's not an extra in the drama of God. He is a critical player. And on Scripture's terms, we don't have the luxury of dismissing Satan as a mythological idea or an impersonal metaphor for evil. But I also understand, like, the devil, the devil, really. Often when I speak with people who perhaps are maybe 
more antagonistic to faith. They can understand why someone would believe in God. They can, they can wrap their heads around that. They might not believe, but they get it. But when it comes to the, the devil, they'll say like, really? Like, really? Like, Satan and demons and evil forces and the like. How can you believe in that? And given everything we now know about the world, I can understand where they're coming from. So what are we supposed to do with these kind of embarrassing elements of Scripture? When it comes to Satan, C.S. Lewis says there's two mistakes we can make. First, the first mistake is that we deny his existence. The first mistake is we deny his existence. The second mistake is to take an unhealthy interest or fixation with him. Do you deny Satan or do you become fixated with him in an unhealthy way? We're going to be prone to one of these errors. Which one are you drawn towards? Which one do you lean towards? Do you deny Satan's existence or do you have an unhealthy fixation with his existence? Honestly, I, I lean a little bit to the denying direction. I I believe in Satan, but I don't give it a ton of thought. And over the years, I've had to learn more and more about how uh, Satan fits into a theology of the kingdom. But which way do you lean? Now, when it comes to Satan, the pastor and theologian John Stott said, we need to rid our minds of the medieval caricature of Satan, dispensing with the horns, the hooves, and the tail We are left with the biblical portrait of a spiritual being who's highly intelligent, immensely powerful, and utterly unscrupulous. But the biblical story also tells us that despite all his intelligence, despite all his power, despite the rule that he's been permitted for now, Jesus has nullified the power of Satan. Yes, Satan still goes about like a roaring lion persecuting the people of God, according to Peter. He will come as an angel of light to deceive, according to Paul. Nevertheless, he is a defeated enemy. His doom is sure as we sing in one of our hymns, because the decisive victory has been won by Christ and his kingdom. So Satan is an enemy we must be aware of, but we must also remember he is a defeated enemy. Keeping this in mind, let's now look at our reading from the Gospel of Luke, the second temptation in the wilderness. You know, for a being who's so highly intelligent, immensely powerful, this second temptation feels a little uninspired, don't you think? If you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 4. We'll look at the second temptation again. It'll also be on the screen. The devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I'll give this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, quoting from Deuteronomy, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Well, that's that. Jesus takes a quick and hard pass on this temptation. Now, why would Jesus exchange worshiping God the Father for worshiping Satan? It wasn't long ago, barely a chapter ago, that God the Father spoke from heaven over Jesus and said, This is my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased. 
And we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke, and we've heard prophetic words spoken over the life of Jesus. He's going to inherit the everlasting kingdom of God. Why would he trade in who he is and what is rightfully going to be his for what Satan offers here? You know, it looks like a no-brainer. Lloyd helpfully pointed out last week that these three temptations are not the only temptations Jesus endured in the wilderness. He was tempted the whole 40 days. So in a way, these are the last three temptations. So maybe the devil's just running out of creativity at this point. Maybe he's running out of steam. Maybe this is his Hail Mary. But what we need to see is that this is a legitimate and difficult temptation for Jesus to endure. The devil isn't running out of good ideas. He's just saved the best for last. So let's look closer at the second temptation. I just want to consider two things, the role of compassion and power. Luke writes in verse 5, the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. All the kingdoms of the world flashing before his eyes in an instant. When Luke says this, I suspect he means all the kingdoms of the world across time and space. And I can't imagine what this would be like. I don't know why, but I kind of imagine uh, the Matrix, you know, when Keanu Reeves gets plugged in and he's like, I know Kung Fu. Like just downloading all that information. But I think it's probably a lot more like a clockwork orange which I don't recommend watching. I watched it a long time ago before I was a Christian. But it's a dark dark movie. It's a masterpiece, but it's really dark. But there's this scene where the guy's eyes are forced to watch just all the kingdoms of the world, but it's the horrors. You see, as Jesus looked at all the kingdoms across time and space, I don't think he just saw the Roman Empire. I think he saw the Ottoman Empire. I think, I think he saw the Mongol Empire, or the Han Dynasty, the, uh, the Spanish Empire, the Russian Empire, the British Empire, all the empires of globalism. And I think he probably saw all of their good, their contributions to society, their beautiful architecture, the, the wonders of the world. He probably saw the, the beauty and the love and the distinctions of all these diverse people across time and space. He saw all the good. Of course he did. But he would have also seen all the brokenness, all the horror, all the suffering, all the injustice, all the exploitation, all the conflict and the war repeating itself. The rise and fall of another empire, another kingdom. The rise and fall, the rise and fall again and again like the rhythm of the tide. You see, I think it can help to imagine it this way if we want to grasp why would this be tempting to Jesus? Because how do you tempt Jesus to compromise what he's ultimately going to inherit from the Father? He's going to have an everlasting kingdom. So how do you tempt him? You show him the pain. You show him the suffering. You show him the breadth and the scope of it all. You don't tempt him with the prestige and the authority per se. You tempt him with the great need for healing, the great need for justice, the great need for equity and peace to be established. You tempt him to use an available authority to make things right sooner rather than later. The civil rights leader and theologian 
Howard Thurman said that this second temptation, when the tempter takes Jesus to this vantage point, shows him the kingdoms of the world, really Satan is saying, isn't this what you're going to do? To see all the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of God? Isn't that what you want? If you want to tempt the beloved Son of God, you draw on his compassion. You pull on his compassion. Because Jesus, he didn't come into the world out of dutiful obligation. Jesus didn't incarnate just to rule and reign over us either. Jesus came into the world because of God's great love for us. That even when we were our worst, according to the Apostle Paul, God loved us and sent Christ to die for us while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies. God still loved us and sent his son into the world because God is rich in mercy and full of compassion, abounding in steadfast love. This is who Jesus is. So if you want to tempt him, as the son of God becomes human, you pull on his compassion. You want the kingdom of God, don't you? You want healing. You want to see all this suffering end. You want to see righteousness spread throughout the earth, don't you? Yes. Yes, says the heart of Christ. But there's something else going on here too. The temptation pulls on his compassion and then tempts him with power. But not in the obvious way. The devil isn't tempting Jesus to lust after having power as he might easily tempt many of us. Satan is tempting Jesus to use a different power to establish his kingdom. And even so, Jesus responds with Scripture, Worship the Lord your God, serve him only. But what is worship? Well, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, This is what worship looks like. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what worship looks like for us. This is what it means to worship God and serve him alone. But what does it mean for Jesus? What does it look, for, look like for Jesus to offer his body as a living sacrifice? What does it look like for him to renew his mind and not be conformed to the temptations of this world? What does it look like for him to discern what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God? Well, in this temptation, Jesus has to discern God's power. He has to discern the power of God. In the Gospels, Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul says that even though Jesus had equality with God, he didn't consider this equality something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, becoming human, taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the the evening before his crucifixion, Jesus wrestles with this power of God. He sweats blood. He cries tears and he prays, if there's another power, if there's another way to establish your kingdom, Lord, let it be so, but not my will, but your 
will be done because I've come to worship God and serve Him alone. We see that the type of power that establishes the kingdom of God is not an easy power to wield because it is the power of the cross. It's the power that is self-denying and self-sacrificing. A power that is of great personal cost to Jesus as He bears our sins in His body on the cross. This is how God's power works. Jesus did not ascend to His everlasting throne before first descending to the cross. Before the crown, there is a cross. And whether Satan was totally aware of this plan or not, he understood that his power is not the same as God's power. And so Satan, he pulls on Jesus' compassion and he tempts him to use a different power to come and accomplish what he came to accomplish. Get the kingdom, just get it with a different power. And Jesus, he's just seen the suffering of the kingdoms of the world across time and space. He knows what the power of God is going to cost him personally. And Satan says, I offer you an easier power. One that doesn't cost you so much. One that will get you the results right away. Just worship me. Now, Jesus, in this temptation, we have to believe He could compromise. He was tempted like we are, but without sin. He didn't compromise, but it was a very real possibility. Jesus could forsake his identity as the Son of God and worship Satan. He could serve Satan, but still establish a kingdom of peace. And let's just say for a moment that this isn't a bait and switch. Even though Satan is the father of all lies, let's pretend that Satan sticks to his word and he hands over all his authority and power to Jesus and that Jesus could rule and reign over the earth as he sees fit. He just has to worship Satan. It's worth asking, well, what would that kingdom be like? What would that kingdom look like? Jesus could still heal. Jesus could still liberate the oppressed. Jesus could unite the nations. He could still establish peace. He could do all of those things. But whatever it would be, it would be a compromised kingdom. It would be a compromised kingdom. Because as good as it may be, Jesus would have to first renounce his identity. Jesus would have to cease being a living sacrifice. He would have to cease serving the will of God that is good and perfect and acceptable. He would have to stop worshiping God And once that happens, once Jesus renounces his identity, how could we presume, how could he presume that he would actually wield satanic power for good? Yes, satanic power can parade around as light, but it cannot be the light. It can mimic the miracles of the kingdom of God, but it cannot be the power of the kingdom of God. And as we've been saying in this series, temptation strikes at identity. And this temptation, once again, strikes at Christ's identity. He would have to compromise who he is. Jesus would have to choose a different power than the one that God has ordained for him. 
But even as Jesus feels weak, even as he feels hungry, even as he's tired, even as he sees all of the suffering as of the world and his deep compassion is stirred, even as he weighs the personal cost of heading to the cross, we must remember the Spirit of God has filled him in his baptism. The Spirit of God has led him out into the wilderness. And I believe the Spirit of God quietly whispers the words of Deuteronomy into his soul, the words that he quotes to the devil, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And this is what Jesus did to us. And I imagine Satan scoffed. Why would you choose the power of God? And we can hear Jesus speaking through Paul in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus chooses the power of God. Jesus chooses to serve. Jesus chooses to worship. Jesus chooses to be the living sacrifice that defeats Satan and even death. Because he chooses and becomes the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. When I was in seminary, one of my professors used to say this with some frequency. The problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. We know this to be true. We're invited to be living sacrifices. This is the kind of worship we're invited into. If we want to worship the Lord our God and serve Him alone, We become living sacrifices. But the problem is we keep crawling off the altar. We know deeply in our souls how easy it is to worship other things other than God. And we might not even give these other things our worship intentionally. But we'll give them our attention. We'll give them our affection. We'll give them our loyalties. They'll become our ultimate purpose. We know how easy it is to fail at this temptation how true it is for us to fail to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. But it's not true for Jesus. It's not true for our Savior because as our true living sacrifice, He's offered the only worship and service that can reconcile us to God and welcome us into an everlasting kingdom of peace that has been established and is coming soon. And He's done this by disarming the power of Satan and evil and death through the cross. So really, I only have one thing I want to ask you this morning. Do you see the goodness of Jesus in enduring this temptation for us? Do you see his goodness and what he endured for us so we could be set free from the power of Satan and death and welcomed into his everlasting kingdom of peace? Let's pray.